You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is Doc G, and today we're going to earn and invest in franchising with Lance Growlick. In the beginning, I never really thought of it as a business. I had joined my partner in our medical practice and he owned it. And after a few years, I bought in, but I never had to make any of those big decisions. Like he had managed staffing and he had managed billing and he was the one who originally found the location and the space. So these things were all handed to me and I didn't have to think much about them. But there was a point in my career where I decided to break away and start my own concierge medical practice. Now, concierge medical practice, what that is, is it means the doctor charges a yearly fee. And this was somewhat new in medicine when I did it. And I had no experience at that point starting a business or setting up a concierge practice. And I had no idea about any of the legal or economic ramifications. And I was really at a turning point. I could have gone one of two ways. I didn't know it, but at the time, there were people who were doing this, who were guiding doctors through these processes. Today, I would call them franchises, but I didn't know it then. So for some of them, you could take on their name and they would provide you the structure and know-how and you would keep your patients and set up a practice. I decided at that time to go down the rabbit hole and learn it all myself. And so I didn't hire any experts, but it really begs the question, do you want to build your own business or buy into one? Do you want to go it alone or work with experts to franchise or not to franchise? That is the question. Lance Growlick is the founder and CEO of Ion Franchising, an industry-leading franchise consulting and development group. He helps prospective entrepreneurs find their perfect franchise. Lance, you're sort of a franchise whisperer. (laughs) Exactly. I've been called the franchise whisperer, the franchise fanatic. So thanks for having me, by the way. I am so excited to have this conversation. I can't think of a single person I know who hasn't daydreamed, at least in some point in their life, about owning a franchise, whether it's a McDonald's or what have you. We've all thought in the back of our mind, hey, we could do that, and it could make us really wealthy. So I love that we're going to have this conversation. Well, I I love having this conversation. It's a, a daily routine, literally seven days a week, I'm talking to somebody about this. So let me see if I can throw you off your game a little bit here. Before we get into the ins and outs of franchising, tell me your worst franchising nightmare, either one you experienced yourself or one of your clients has gone through. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of business nightmares in general, and franchising is no different. One of mine would be that, you know, some people, the the hardest part about a franchise is 
if it's brick and mortar, to find a location, to find a great location. How do you know if it's the right location? Uh, Obviously, there's experts to help you and guide you along the way. The fact of the matter is most franchise failures are operator error, so to speak. You know, in McDonald's, as an example, which is arguably the most famous brand there is out there, franchisor, as it's called, there is still a bottom 20% of, of poor performers. Every brand, I sadly would say, has a bottom 20%. Just like in sports, there's that bottom 20% of baseball teams or basketball teams or, sadly, my old football team, the New York Jets. So having said that, I, I had an aggressive plan when I became a franchisee, and I brought in the wrong partners. If I was doing a single unit, which I could have handled on my own, it would have been fine. But I brought in the wrong partners. And as we grew and as there was money and as I was running the stores well, I went to my attorney and he said, well, you either buy them out or, you know, sell the stores or whatever. And it was awful because I made, I built, built this wonderful empire and I didn't feel like I should stay with it. I spent all this time, but it was a wonderful experience. And I was very successful as a franchisee. I was a high performing franchisee. My financial plan was a mess because I brought in the wrong partners. So that was my own nightmare that was uh, self-inflicted, if you will. Two thoughts come to mind as I hear you answer that question. First of all, some terminology. Franchisee is the person who buys into the franchise and is running the business. Franchisor is the person who is the expert who is selling you the franchise. And yes, a franchise is a business just like any other business. So we love to think of it as plug and go, but they're human factors and you still have to understand business and how it's run. You mentioned that you were a franchisee. Talk to us a little bit about how you got into this business in the first place. Did you enter the consulting world first as being a franchisee yourself? No. So let's let's go back. I grew up in New York and I thought I was going to work on Wall Street and work for dad's company. They were the largest over-the-counter trading house on Wall Street. Most people would kill for that job, plenty interview and never get positions like that, even, even entry level. And I did it throughout my summers and hi- throughout high school and out of college, getting my economics degree. I, I worked for the firm and and I realized right away it was a little bit boring for me. I didn't want to sit in an office at that stage in my life and just do trades. And it wasn't, it wasn't very exciting. Throughout college, I kind of got bit by the bug of the hospitality industry, working in bars and restaurants, as some people might, and you know, get involved in hospitality either through high school or college. And all of a sudden, I got a call from very successful, I call him my uncle, pseudo-uncle, good friend of my real uncle who was an early tech guy in the 70s, made a lot of money when digital phones went to analog. I'm sorry, the other way around. Analog went to digital, made a lot of money, and he wanted to build a huge restaurant franchise company. So he became a TGI Fridays franchisee. I joined him in the very early stages, and I helped him build that from basically nothing to a $225 million a year company within about five years, mostly through acquisition. So that's where I guess I can tell you I received my MBA on the job, really learning the restaurant business. And it's a people business. You hear Howard Schultz from Starbucks, the founder of Starbucks, talk about the fact that Starbucks isn't in the coffee business. It's in the, you know, they're in the people business. So when you get in the restaurant business, I absolutely agree with that statement. So for me, 
my dad will tell you that, you know, because both of my grandfathers were also very much entrepreneurs and very successful in different industries. One was a real estate attorney that would also buy buildings. And the other was, you know, a Polish immigrant that built up a supermarket chain throughout Brooklyn and Queens and was incredibly successful. So my dad knew I wasn't going to be employable for very long. I had my own ideas and I had my own ways of doing things. So I, but I knew I had to cut my teeth at a real job, so to speak. And, and TGI Friday's Five years was a big learning experience. I've been a food and beverage director at a casino in Vegas, opened a big casino, 700 employees, 50 million in food and beverage. So then I decided, well, I don't have all my own money and the restaurant business is the worst franchise to get into when you're not sitting on millions of dollars. That's why, you know, the the misconceptions or the truths about the uh, franchise world is, yeah, you do have to be a millionaire to be a McDonald's franchisee. Uh, but you don't, the large majority of franchise brands that I represent, you don't have to be. So literally, you know, there's also an argument, and of course you have a medical background, you know, what is the nature versus nurture? Are people born entrepreneurs? Are they genetically predisposed? In my case, it was absolutely environmental, could have been genetic as well. So for me, I was then searching, how do I become a big restaurateur? And I didn't have all my own money. I had some. And I, you know, leveraged that through partners. And I had some successes where I was outrageously successful, I can, I can say, is I am a great operator. And I learned that because I'm good with people. I've learned and I, I have books planned on this because people ask me all the time, how do you find such great employees? And there's a truth to that as to how I find them. I don't just put an ad out there. I actually do find them. And I have some methods to that. But I knew I wanted to be my own boss. I became a franchisee and a partner in Krispy Kreme Donuts in a couple of states. I was a big Wingstop franchisee. I was president of the Franchise Advisory Council for Wingstop. So I was elected by my peers. I was always a, always a doer and always a natural leader and, and a thinker. I, I always spend 10% of my day innovating. I always want to be better. I want to figure out I'm a lifelong learner. So fast forward to where I am today, I've consulted for a lot of companies as a consulting CEO or acting CEO, COO in the restaurant space. But in the franchise world, I came across a lot of young emerging brands that needed help. Maybe their sales team couldn't sell their franchise or they weren't doing some of the things as I would. So I jumped in to help quite a few uh, young brands in the, na- in the last probably 15 years or so. A lot of restaurant consulting because that's my strong suit. I'm a self-taught chef. I just helped a Food Network star open up a bakery. They hired me to set things up because while this Food Network star is amazing, there's certain things he's never actually done before in a kitchen with deep fryers per se. So enter, enter Lance, the uh, deep fryer, you know, franchise restaurant expert. I consult for private equity groups as well on the restaurant space. They always want to know where the trends are. And through what we just have been through and what we're still going through, there's still all kinds of discussions. You know, where should we be in the restaurant space? Well, it's pretty easy. You don't want to be in a five, 6,000 square foot restaurant today. But fast, casual, smaller footprint restaurants are phenomenal. So my life passion, Doc, plain and simple, is I love franchising. I love business. I love startups. I love the beginnings. I'm not a maintainer. I hate maintaining. Anybody can maintain. 
I'm a creator. My license plate is actually still creator. <laughs> That's what I do. And so it makes sense that you would move from the franchisee world to being a consultant. You talked about institutionally some of what you do with your consulting, but a big part of what you do too is on the individual level, you help people find the right franchise for them. Is that correct? Absolutely. And it's my favorite thing. I mean, yesterday I talked to five brand new people that were all through referral. I do plenty of lead generation as well, but these were all referrals and they're all different. I mean, I talk to these days, a lot of corporate type executives that maybe have been, maybe there's anywhere from 40 to 50 that, and, and much older, of course, I have a gentleman, 56, I'm talking to again today. And, you know, they've been downsized though. They've been told, uh, here's your final check. There's a pandemic out there and we can't really afford you any longer. And I'm happy to help. And many of them come to me with a general idea of what they like and what they don't like. Some might say to me, I definitely don't want a restaurant. And others might say, you know, I did work in my family restaurant when I was a kid and I really enjoyed that. Okay. So I can find, I, you know, they get to discover so many brands that they don't know exists with me that are proven. And that's a whole other conversation that we can dive into. And I'm sure we will. <laughs> Let's talk about franchising itself. First, is there an easy definition of what makes something a franchise and how many of them are in the U.S. right now? Franchising at last count, I mean, is five, six, probably 5,000 these days, could be 6,000. There's, there's no, you know, there's no way to do a Google search and get a real accurate number. It depends whose list you're looking for, because as you probably are aware, and some of your audience might be aware, is franchising is regulated by the federal government, by the Federal Trade Commission. So each brand, as they hit a certain state, there are registration states, there are non-registration states or filing states. And so there are some brands like McDonald's, of course, is in all 50 states uh, and around the world. There are many brands that I have that are not registered in New York or California yet. They save those more cumbersome or difficult registration states for the end or until they have such, such demand. So uh, let's assume five, 6,000 franchises, whatever the number is these days. I represent more brands than anybody. I have almost 600 of some of the best brands in every category imaginable. Now, as far as what the definition is, a franchise is really a licensing arrangement, not to be confused with the term licensing that sometimes gets used in the place of franchising, but you have the right to use somebody's trademark, obviously. So if you're a McDonald's uh, franchisee, you have a right to use their trademark. And in a franchise model, let's say, compared to a licensing deal. So let's take an example, Starbucks. Starbucks doesn't franchise. But what they chose to do is they would license their name to big operators, whether it's a casino or a hotel or a yeah, hotel, could be a hospital, but they'll license their name airports as well. They'll, they'll license their name to be used and somebody needs to follow their system. In a franchise, it's about control. In a franchise, you have the legal right to control uh, a substantial amount of things that go on in that building. For example, cooking procedures, equipment used, products purchased, uniforms. You know, the HR application, the hiring piece has been talked about for many years. And that's, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's a whole legal discussion of, 
you know, are McDonald's franchisees or their employees potentially part of the McDonald's corporate structure? Because McDonald's corporate does have some control and can they be unionized? And it's been tested and the answer is no, at least at this point, let's hope not, because there is different ownership and there is certainly a different entity that oversees those employees. And corporate McDonald's has no hiring right over you know, the franchisee. The franchisee hires their employees, period. But in a franchise, it's about control. There's an entire system. It's a proven system. And uh, I could walk you through later in this conversation or whenever you'd like the stages of how people get into that process with me and, and, and why it works so well. I want to jump to a few questions first. Let's take sure. coffee, for instance. So you can buy into a franchise, something like a Dunkin' Donuts. If you are a hospital or a school, maybe you can have a licensing agreement with someone like Starbucks. Why do those things as opposed to start Doc G's Coffee House and kind of run it on your own? What, why go the franchise route? Well, the number one reason that people jump into franchises is the system and name recognition. So, you know, to create your own system. Now, if you were a barista, let's say at Starbucks, and then you did something else for a while, and then you decided a couple of years later, I want to start my own coffee place. You can. You have some expertise in the industry. Now, you might not have the expertise in sourcing or purchasing and things like that. You certainly can't buy Starbucks coffee to put in your new Doc G's coffee house. I mean, I guess you could, you can work a deal with them. You can end up overpaying to sell it, you know, retail. But, you know, the, the bottom line is it's, it's a proven system and there's a, what I call a profit path. So any entrepreneur, whether you're a doctor or, you know, uh, a gentleman that, that just came into this country, I have a lot of E2 visa type candidates as well that just need to buy a solid business that they could see a clear path to profit and they certainly can't create on their own. Is the cost control? Like how much control do you give up as a franchisee about how, how you run your business? And I'm sure it varies from, from company to company. Yeah, you know, it, it's again, all about really the process. When I take people through the process and they get to get excited about a few brands and they go down the path with the executive team and do some sort of discovery day and get into validation. Validation is when you are talking to existing franchisees of brands. So for example, if you're getting into a McDonald's, you're going to have this conversation and a McDonald's is going to hand you a list of franchisees and say, doc, here's what I need you to do as the final step. I know you're happy. We're happy with you. We really need you to validate. Call, call five franchisees, ask them whatever you'd like. And, and they're not bound by a franchise disclosure document, which is the legal document that all franchise brands have to create. It has 23 items to it. There's financial representations and in the item 19 it's a it's an earnings claim essentially tells you all about the investment level and these aren't necessarily any pro forma pieces these are historical financials that show what it cost so look anybody that is bright and it doesn't matter what your background is and you get into a franchise and i love to tell the story i have a friend that has he makes a fortune, nets a million and a half dollars a year with a bunch of franchise hair salons. He has no hair. He has no ability nor desire to cut anybody's hair. He had no interest in the industry, in fact. He just figured out it was, you know, when you take the emotion out of your search for a franchise and somebody listens 
really intently to what it is that Doc's looking for. Okay, Doc, you're looking to be semi-absentee owner. You're looking to invest a certain amount of money. You would prefer an SBA loan, which is Small Business Administration, loans for franchises regularly to stimulate the economy. It's been a thing for years and they still continue to do that. You know, it's amazing what people end up with when they're open-minded. And here's a guy that's netting a million and a half dollars a year, probably works six hours a week because he wants to. He has a full team that does it for him. And, you know, so it's, it's an amazing, amazing business. If you find the right franchise, I tell people, and I don't want to scare people, but the reality is anybody can do it. But there's a lot of people I hear talking about doing, being their own boss for 20, 30 years and never do it. And because there's work involved, you know, it's like losing weight. Anybody can lose weight, but there's work involved. There's time involved. And the reality is like a marriage, you can pick a bad franchise. Maybe you didn't ask the right questions. Maybe they picked the wrong franchisee in you, but there will be failures, but there will be less failures than you going into business for yourself. Now, what I tell people is if you have a burning desire to start Doc G's Coffee House, and then what you should do first, if I were you, is look, call me. Look at all the coffee houses that I have. Look at all the non-franchise coffee houses that aren't available like Starbucks and do a competitive or comparative analysis on price points, service level. Do they have a drive-through? What are their what what is their secret sauce? The number one thing you'll hear me talk about often, doc, is the secret sauce. If you're getting into a franchise, they have to have a secret sauce that you want to sell, that you get excited about. If it's cutting hair, it's the fact that they have an amazing app that nobody else has in the market today, or they have the name brand recognition, you know, like McDonald's, for example. So those are just some thoughts. We all want to make a million and a half dollars a year. And you mentioned this idea that sometimes failure has to do with picking the wrong franchise but let's look at personal responsibility here too. Are there certain characteristics that make someone good at being a franchisee? Every single brand that I have that has, you know, 20 or more franchisees, they absolutely have a criteria. And I can say to them, let's say you were a franchisor, Doc. So Doc, what is, who is your ideal candidate? and they will rattle off to you who that ideal candidate is. I have a kid's franchise. I have many kid's franchises. I have probably 30 kids-related franchises from tutoring to after-school care, which, as we know, is a great thing to get into today. Kids, you know, everybody's fighting to figure out what to do with their kids while they're doing all this online stuff these days. But the bottom line is they'll tell you that former teachers do amazing with these kids-related franchises. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And that tends to skew a little bit, you know, more women than men. But that's just one example. They could even give you an age group, you know. So when I'm talking to people, so first of all, I have a free assessment on my website and it's quite scientific and it's geared towards prospective franchisees. And based on this 15-minute assessment, it will give me everything about your mindset, your skill set, and what your risk tolerance really is based on your history, based on what you've done. You know, if you've been in IT and you're not comfortable with sales, well, guess what? It's going to tell me that. 
And I'm not going to show you any franchises where you need any sales ability because I have some really successful franchises where they have franchisees on a $62,000 investment doc. You can net and they have people netting a million dollars a year out of their house. But if you don't have sales ability, you're not going to be a franchisee for them. So it almost sounds like there's not an individual avatar for someone who should be a franchisee. It actually is more business specific that based on your personal characteristics, you might be better for one type versus another versus just an overall general avatar of who someone is. Absolutely. And and let me, let me uh, refine that my answer then based on that, the avatar I will easily be able to pick up on what this person is really all about, not only based on the assessment, but I ask a lot of other questions to understand. And we, and, you know, it's interesting too, because, you know, I was talking to a gentleman the other day that, that said he loves sailing and it might not normally be useful in the conversation, but it can be, it can be to understand what people's, you know, lifestyle is a legitimate question. What do you want to work weekends? Do you want to work nights? So the avatar becomes pretty clear as, as we go down the path and I start selecting brands and they start to have initial conversations with brands. And if I miss something or screwed something up, it's going to come out and I could easily redirect. Again, my services are free, so they're not paying me for any of it. And I like that people talk to multiple brands, even if something doesn't work out in this conversation, because it helps people to realize and refocus them as well as to what they really want and what they don't want. Because isn't that what life's about? Sometimes they don't know what they, they want or don't want until they go through a certain experience. I'll repeat that because it's important for people to know. So Lance's services are paid for completely by the brands. So your time to the prospective franchisee is completely free, which is very nice. Absolutely. Does anyone ever go through your process and you look at them and say, you know what? I don't think this is right for you. You should be an employee or you should, this is, you should not jump into a franchise. Well, I'll tell you a story recently. And, and look, this This is the funniest part, too, because there's, again, so many misconceptions about franchising that it's only for millionaires or this and that. There was a gentleman I I had called me. Well, it was a warm lead. It was uh, I know somebody that's VP of franchise development for a big company calls me and said, I got this CPA. He doesn't fit anything that I'm doing, but I told him he should talk to you because you have all these brands, all these great brands. And I talked to him and he was pretty bullheaded. He believed he knew exactly what he wanted, but he wasn't being reasonable. And I had to tell him in the first call, I said, look, you know, I understand you own a lot of property and you want to fill your shopping center with a couple of choice franchises. And I got plenty of great ones for you. So he picked a a really hot fitness brand. And because I proposed it to him, it was available. I did. I do territory checks. I make sure it's available. If I have any questions, I talk to the brand. In this case, I went out of my way like I do for anybody. I called the brand and I said, I know this isn't the norm. You want to talk to people first. You want to get to know them first. You don't do site-specific deals. Like maybe a very young brand with a few locations. I can call you, Doc, if that was you, your brand and say, hey, Doc, can you look at this location and Kansas and tell me if it would be suitable for you. Have your real estate team look at it. And 
And a young brand would do that, but a mature, more mature, very successful brand really doesn't care about the real estate because the person probably won't fit anyway. And they don't want to waste their team's time when they're so busy. They already have 150 sold. They're all looking for sites. Oh, by the way, stop and look at this guy's site in Kansas. It wasn't Kansas, whatever state it was. Long and the short of it is he participated in a call. And then I get a call from the VP of development who I know. And she says, Lance, he doesn't fit. And I was like, he's a CPA. What do you mean he doesn't fit? And she started laughing because she knew I was joking because the perception is I'm a CPA. I'm a doctor. I'm a professional. So that means that you should want me. It's not how it works in franchising with, with great brands. Great brands want the right person for their brand that fits their culture, that when they have an annual you know, event, when we could do events again, they want to have a, a cocktail. They want to have dinner. They want to share the wonderful stories about their successes. But gentlemen like this will never listen. They're going to always do their own thing. And he ended up getting kicked out of the process. They gave him one more shot. I said, let's give him one more shot. He got kicked out of the process. And then I referred him to, to another brand that doesn't franchise. And I think he ended up doing that deal. And I, I just called somebody I knew and I said, I have something you're going to like. Okay. And it'll be easy for you. <laughs> there are quite a few people that I have to kick out of the system and I know are not going to be right. There are a lot of people to look for unreasonable things. I had a gentleman call me the other day. He goes, I only want a McDonald's. And I said, well, it, it's going to be pretty hard to get a McDonald's in your area. You, you can get a resale, but a, a, a great franchise brand, when someone goes to retire, typically the franchisor, also known as the corporation, typically will have a first right of refusal. Sometimes the corporation will buy those stores or they'll give that option to existing franchisees first. So good luck you, if that's what you want. <laughs> you mentioned that the brands are looking for a certain type of person who will fit into their brand, but they're also looking for some economic return. Talk about how franchisees are funding the deal. Do they need a lot of money up front? Do you have to be wealthy to start this no, process? You, you absolutely do not. I have... Look, the short answer to your question is I have so many franchise lenders and they're typically SBA lenders, most of them. And you're talking 25% down payment. That's the norm. Now, here's a challenge within that. I had a gentleman come to me. It's a high school friend. He had too much money. And for what he wanted, if you have too much cash on hand. So the SBA did not, in my opinion, from my experiences, the SBA wasn't enforcing this as much over the years. And they've cracked down a little bit in, in, in 2020 or maybe in 2019. If you're looking to borrow $100,000 or $200,000 or whatever the number is, if you have one and a half times the cash on hand that you're looking to borrow, they won't, they won't lend it to you. They'll tell you to just use your cash. So, you know, look, the, one of the biggest things these days is still the, the ROBS, rollover business startup loans. A lot of people didn't even know they existed. I think they got on the books in the 70s and nobody really took advantage of them. But you can borrow against your uh, 401k, a retirement plan. My wife has a 403b. She's a teacher. But there's a process to that. There's a fee to that. It, it's basically setting up a new retirement account for that amount of money that you pulled over. And IRS has to approve that system and you need somebody to 
manage that process for you. And people do that for the purposes of buying real estate, buying businesses, whatever it might be. But the rollover business startup loan for those that have you know money in their retirement account is another great way uh, to do it. If you listened to last week's episode, we had Jonathan Medved on from our crowd, and we talked about the difference between speculation and investment. And he brought up a really good point. The truth of the matter is the returns on equities and bonds are not looking like they're going to be great over the next few years. So everybody is looking for ways to invest and improve the returns really To meet the expectations we've built over the last few years, many of us are interested in venture capital. We're interested in being involved in the newest and greatest IPOs, and yet we just don't know how or we don't have enough money. Well, our crowd might just be the solution. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, our crowd is offering an investment called Rewire. Rewire's digital banking services are specifically tailored for international workers to both send money home to their country of origin and bank in their country of residence. Now, this is a really important idea. We know around the world we have migrant workers who are struggling to figure out their own banking needs. Rewire reports rapid year-over-year and month-over-month growth in the trillion-dollar global financial services market for international and migrant workers. You can get in early on Rewire and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The Our Crowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. So Lance, these are unprecedented times. Very few people foresaw this pandemic. Certainly, we feel like we're in the midst of recession. How are franchises doing in this climate? What's going on? Yeah, so I was mentioning the corporate executives that are, you know, naturally losing their jobs because there are some companies that are really affected by the pandemic. There are other companies that are not. Depends on what arena you're in. In the franchise world, we are busier than ever. Now, there are some, look, about 50% of my business, 50% of the people that I talk to are are what I call the 
true or natural entrepreneurs. Maybe they became that recently or they've been that their whole lives and have been itching to do their own business. And it doesn't matter what the climate, I'm going to find them a business. The other half of the people that I'm typically talking to are scared. And mindset is a huge piece of what I do on a regular basis when I talk to people because you know, I'm talking to a young nurse right now and you know, you being a doctor, there's a lot of wellness franchises that have popped up over the years and, and some new niches, especially like IV Infusion. I have quite a few of those brands that are doing crazy business and especially due to the pandemic, people looking for an immunity boost. But when I'm talking to a young nurse that has some money, she can, she can take 70000 or less, get an SBA loan for the balance and she's in business and a, and a nice high profit IV infusion studio clinic that she's running, you know, you do need to hire a medical director and that's part of the process. I equate that to uh, if you're going to do a big restaurant, you had to hire a chef. It's the cost of doing business. You still have nice profitability left over. But in the franchise world today, there are so many low cost franchises. I have so many franchises under 100,000 that are essentially either recession proof. Well, most of them are pretty recession proof. Some people would argue they're recession resistant. I have plenty of brands that were doing well prior to the pandemic that have adapted and have added a lot of virtual either sales calls or services through Zoom or, or other vehicles. So look, there's very few businesses that are bad through a pandemic. I can tell you fitness is questionable. Fitness brands have been incredibly hot prior to the pandemic. Well, I think everybody naturally knows, Doc, right now, like my gym, I just go to a local Anytime Fitness at the moment, which is a franchise, my friend, my friend's company, who I set up franchises for a living. We take independent businesses and make them into franchises. And Anytime Fitness is one of the brands he set up many years ago. And Anytime has signs up because they're scared. They're scared because if people aren't wearing masks and somebody comes in from the county and inspects, they have to be shut down again. And, and you can't imagine as a business owner, I mean, you can't imagine how awful that is. I know you have, you have rental properties. I've heard some of your stories and what you go through when you have unplanned stops, if you will, or unplanned, an unplanned derailment of your financial plan, if you will. This, you know, we, nobody expected 2020 to be like this. And fitness is one of those that is definitely a little bit difficult. In the salon business today, you know, there are Maybe people, uh, I could tell you, although my hair doesn't look great today, you know, my <laughs> wife's been cutting my hair at home because she learned, you know, she, she has some ability for that. And, and when we were in full-blown pandemic stages and I had no place to go and I would go to my local franchise hair salon that my friends own. And, you know, I stopped because it was, I couldn't go. And my wife started cutting my hair and she liked it. So I was like, all right, honey, I'll let you cut my hair until people make fun of me. Anyway, there are so many opportunities today. I would not obviously be in a big box restaurant concept. I had one of my clients call me a big box restaurant franchise group that performed incredibly well prior to the pandemic. Their head of development called me yesterday. So what do you got, Lance? You got anything for us? And I said, Mark... I don't know what to tell you. He goes, yeah, I know. And I was like, I know you know, but this is your job. You need to check in. And I said, have you guys thought of creating a smaller concept that is takeout only or minimal seats because they have all this exposure from, I don't know, 10,000 a month, 12,000, 15,000 a month rent. 
when they could have a 1200 square foot restaurant, just do takeout. And, you know, like the wing stops of the world are doing fantastic these days. Is there an extra layer of protection in the franchise world? Are you seeing that the franchisors are stepping up and supporting their franchisees during this harder economic time? Boy, that's a wonderful question. And absolutely. I can't, I'm very proud being in this industry. How many franchisors have jumped in to either, you know, defer royalties or, you know, suspend royalties, uh, royalty collection and say, yeah, don't worry about it. And on top of it, they've had law firms or accounting firms, I should say as well, jump in when PPP had first started up. Of course, every franchisee is, is asking themselves, well, what do I do? Well, the mothership is the franchisor. That is the most amazing thing about being in a franchise system is you're not alone. And you can call anybody within the system. When I was president of the Franchise Advisory Council for Wingstop, I get calls all day and night from franchisees, new and old. Hey, did you see the wing prices? Did we know they were going up? I thought we had a, you know, a fixed price for the next three months. What about the oil? You know, these are all commodities. Shouldn't we lock in? Well, and, you know, look, we, we lobby <laughs> just like the government and go back to the franchisor and say, wait a second, we weren't aware of these things. So to your specific question, absolutely. Being part of a franchise system is amazing through any tough times because you get to really lean on each other for answers to the questions. And and the franchisors will bring those resources to the franchisees to solve these problems. So I know plenty of organizations that brought in PPP experts to get it all done almost as a group. They were obviously done separately, but, but really as a group deal, so to speak. So it's pretty incredible. So let's look at your catalog in 2020. What are the top three hot franchises right now? Well, first of all, I always love restoration brands. So there there are quite a few restoration brands that I have. So perfect example, in the event of a hurricane, a tornado, any other natural disaster, mold remediation, flooding, fire. Sadly, we have that all the time. And, And those brands are always hot. And those brands are seeing no effect, you know, nothing at all. I can tell you that as people have been, call it trapped at home, <laughs> you know, whether, whether it's window covering franchises or flooring companies, you know, Doc, I think your, your family experienced, I'm sure what I, my family experienced and others, there was kind of that freeze, if you will, for the first 30 days within the pandemic, like, how long is this going to last? And so what do we do? What can't we do? Hmm, I got to cancel that vacation. I mean, you start thinking of, well, how is this really changing my life for the next three months, six months, year? We don't know. So I, I can tell you that a lot of the home repair franchises, while they had that freeze, some of them were up 150% year over year once things kick back in gear. Now, there were some scared franchisees initially because they went from doing well and seeing some nice growth to absolutely no business. And then all of a sudden exploding. And how do they how do they now tackle that with their PPP and all? I could tell you the wellness brands I mentioned, Ivy Infusion, Med Spa type brands are still the wellness segment is is certainly incredibly hot. I mean, restaurants still are incredibly hot, period. But it's got to be a small restaurant. It's got to be what's called a fast casual restaurant. 
or a QSR with a drive-through. I have, I have a, a brand. They have one location in, in, in South Florida, in the Fort Lauderdale area. I just talked to their CEO yesterday. It's a good friend of mine. He's incredibly famous in the industry. He and his team built a, a world-famous brand and sold it, and now they're on their new one. Well, their new brand, he just called me yesterday. He goes, this franchisee in, in South Florida is doing $40,000 a week in business out of 1,800 square feet. So, you know, you do them. It, that's incredible. It's incredible. And he's seeing that across his entire franchise. And they're also doing now drive throughs and whatever. So the restaurant business is as hot as it's ever been in the small uh, segments. And consider this, part of the reason the restaurant business is so hot is people that might have gone to more fine dining restaurants or due to a lot of independent restaurant closures, there's, there's some less, lesser, less choices in certain cities today. And, and people that don't feel safe can do takeout instead of enjoying the normal dining in experience. So they're just doing the, you know, any, anybody that's heavy in takeout is incredibly positioned today to do really, really well. But, you know, look, th- there are some questionable franchises. I mentioned kids franchises earlier. Everybody always wants to spend money on their kids. And a lot of those brands have adapted and, and done a lot of virtual things as well. So those brands are still going to be doing well, but you know, it, it's, it's how well they've adapted. I have a lot of business related service companies, B2B that still look, people need to, I, I so I mentioned a brand earlier that is incredible. I, didn't, I don't say the name because I want people to call me and I'll tell them this information. But uh, one of the brands I have that's $62,000, they did everything face-to-face. They love, they were the old fashioned, let's set appointments and they work on a contingency basis to save businesses money on all of their, their vendor watchdogs is what they call themselves. And it's a needed service, especially these days. If somebody's lost revenue, what's the other way to make your P&L look, look good is you cut your expenses. So they work for free, but they're going to save you money. And these franchisees make a lot of money and a lot of residual income. And the franchisees are now loving it. Why? Because they don't have to get in the car and do those face-to-face appointments. It's now acceptable to get on a Zoom call and have a conversation with somebody. So there's a lot of those brands doing incredibly well. I mean, there's just, there's just so many. When I talk to people, it's, you know, finance. I have a, I have a you want to be your own finance broker? I, I have that. It's a very low cost franchise. It's 20 grand. It's 20 grand. It's actually a licensing deal. They're out of New York City. They've only been doing it 39 years. <laughs> they know exactly what they're doing. And, and you can make a substantial living. But look, in any brand, if you're willing to do the work, it's work in the beginning. Everybody works. You know, uh, if anybody's telling you that you can start a franchise and not do work in the beginning, it's, it's obviously a falsehood. You mentioned the big box restaurants and I imagine travel agents too. talk about some of the brands that aren't working in 2020. Yeah. I mean, travel is still something that I'm sure plenty of people are nervous about. We have quite a few travel related brands, you know, and, and, and look, there's deals to be had and there's, there's, you know, people are pushing off their dates. They're giving incentives to book things now for later. So travel and the big box restaurants, you know, off the top of my head, I mean, there's, there's, you know, anything where you have to have the face-to-face contact. So I mentioned hair salons already, you know, there are people that don't want to leave their house. There are people that are still scared and maybe they're going to the grocery store if they forget to place an online order to get their groceries delivered, but they're, they're limiting their exposure. So a haircut wouldn't necessarily be a mandatory. 
And then you have people like my mom that, 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 you know, are, are in their seventies that still have to get their nails done no matter what. And, and we have, you know, after restaurants prior to the pandemic, the restaurant segments always hot, but personal care was always another incredibly hot segment. So that's salons and that's massage. Well, massage these days, how do you, you know, who feels comfortable doing that? It's not something that people are excited to go do these days. You know, nail salons, I think were one of those, you know, my wife goes and my daughter goes frequently, but everybody seems to be, the techs are wearing masks because they're inhaling chemicals all day. So I think, you know, that maybe is, is okay these days, but I'm drawing a blank on the rest. You know, there's, 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 there's tons. I'd have to open up my computer and go through them and rate them for you. But there's uh, if you go to my website, Ion Franchising, you look through automotive, for example, is an essential business and category. There's a whole category I didn't even mention. It's all essential. And the automotive segment's never been hotter. Now that there's financial distress in people's households, they're not trading their cars in as frequently uh, now, especially if you're without a job, but you're going to have, you're going to have to repair your old car if that's the case. And, you know, brands like Meineke and brands like Mako, if you wanted to paint your old car and still make it look good, those are great franchises that have been forever that are in my portfolio as well to be, you know, to give an example. So Lance, sum it up for us. For those of us listening right now who have been on the fence and contemplating pursuing a franchise, what would you tell them? Well, and I, I'll tell them that I just left out the hottest segment, which is home health care. <laughs> home health care, companion care is going to grow for 30 years. So that, that's another one. But the summary is this. I cost nothing, as I, you already mentioned earlier. I'm a freebie. Um, I'm a resource to help people through this process. And there's a lot of people that get scared. It doesn't matter what you're you know, profession is today or what your past experience has been, people get nervous because they don't understand the process. I had an anesthesiologist tell me recently, I want to start my own business. I've worked at a hospital my whole life. I was never in my own private practice. And my wife tells me I can't do it. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. And I felt awful because I said, well, it's, it's not true. So it starts with a phone call. Okay. And then we have to get your mindset correct. Because the reality is there are safety nets in the franchise world. If you're going to start your own business, the failure rate is just too high. Unless you have a burning desire to do something very specific that you have knowledge of, that you feel you have to start and the world is desperately missing, then I will find a franchise for you that fits you and you'll be very happy with. And we will discover that profit path. I'll show you that profit path and how quickly you ramp up, how quickly you can back up and potentially put a manager in place. So that's the conversation I get into people. Are you going to be the owner operator? What is your lifestyle choice? You're looking to be a semi-absentee owner. I have plenty of absentee owned or executive level type businesses that are perfect for people that have a thriving profession. Their cup has runneth over in capital and they need to do something with it. You know, you got Main Street, you got Wall Street, and the Main Street side is, you know, what you do in real estate investing and, and obviously business startups. And so I, I have those options for anybody. We're talking with Lance Growlick from Ion Franchising. Lance, tell us what's up next in your life and where can people find you online if they want to know more? 
All, all at Ion Franchising, I-O-N franchising.com. I'm on social media like that as well. What's up for me is I'm on the hunt. I do business development constantly, and I'm always looking for the next great brand. And I have a, I have a few young, amazing brands that will be billion-dollar companies someday. So call me and let's have a conversation. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Lance Growick. That's a wrap. Thanks, Doc. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that there are many ways to interact with the Earn and Invest podcast. You can listen to us, as hopefully you already do, on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or pretty much wherever you find podcasts. You can also go to the earnandinvest.com website. There are episode pages there, as well as links to videos and blog posts. There's a bunch of extra information there. And while you're there, don't forget to either leave us a voice message or sign up for the mailing list. That way you can be up to date on what's happening at Earn and Invest immediately as it happens. There is also the Earn and Invest Facebook group that is at facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. We discuss all sorts of topics, everything big and small having to do with the economy, sometimes politics, and often just other social issues or even funny gifts. Pretty much you can find just about anything there. I wanted to take a moment or two to discuss a article that I recently posted on the Earn and Invest Facebook group. It was put out by MarketWatch, and it is titled, The Inventor of the 4% Rule Just Changed It. As you guys may know, the 4% rule is pretty much also called the safe withdrawal rate. This is the idea that when you have a certain amount of invested assets, how much of those assets can you spend down each year and still have your portfolio survive at least 30 years? Bill Bangin was the person who really started talking about the 4% safe withdrawal rate. This was based on the Trinity study. 4% was the amount that we thought at least previously was safe. If you withdrew 4% of your invested assets on a yearly basis and readjusted each year, that money should last. And in fact, there was a good probability that there would be more at the end of 30 years than at the beginning. Of course, the big thing we worry about is sequence of returns risk, how the market does in those first 10 years that you are retired and drawing off your investments is probably the riskiest time if the sequence of returns is good with withdrawing 4%, you'll most likely have more money than you started with. On the other hand, if the sequence of returns is abysmal, you'll either hit that zero point at about 30 years or God forbid, there is always a small chance you could go negative. Bill Bangin recently has been saying that maybe 4% is too conservative. There have been suggestions that we can even go as high as 5%. This is a controversial issue. You can look at the numbers all you want, and many people have crunched the data, but it's also an emotional issue, especially for those who have been studying financial independence or thinking about retiring early. We have really anchored on this 4% number, and in fact, not only have we anchored on it, but most of us have tried to become super safe by looking at numbers lower than 4%. So some people will say 35 or 3% 
is the true safe withdrawal rate. It's interesting to see how those of us in our community are now reacting to this idea that even 4% might be too conservative. I got some interesting comments when I put this post up on the Facebook page. Dominic Lung said, personally, I'd sleep better at 3.5%. Jennifer Ma agreed and said, same. Seth Jones said, based on the episode with Michael Kitsis, it was my impression that this feedback was based on more traditional retirement age as opposed to early retirement. So Michael Kitsis is a very well-known financial advisor and has spoke extensively about the safe withdrawal rates. And again, Seth reminds us that if we're talking about traditional retirement of 30 years or less, a lot of us are considering early retirement, which means that our portfolio might have to last 40, 50 years. Bill Yount replied, Larry Suedro says 3%. Uh, and Kathleen Hutch asked, wait, so retirees can spend more money? The point is, this is a controversial issue. And maybe the correct approach is that not one number works for everybody. And in fact, one number may seem appropriate to you at one point in your life and then less appropriate later. I think the idea here, especially if you're looking at early retirement, is that you have to be able to pivot. You need to look every year, see what's happening, see what your sequence of returns risk has been. Look, no one could have told us that a pandemic was going to happen this year and a recession associated with it. It was something that we couldn't foresee, and the truth of the matter is the future is also always unknowable. No one can say that if you do 3% as your safe withdrawal rate, you're for absolutely sure going to be safe. There are no guarantees. Most of this is about risk management. So I like hearing that Bill Bangin maybe is a little bit less conservative. That way, our 4% are probably going to be safe in a environment in which maybe we could go off a 5% safe withdrawal rate. Certainly the 3 and the 3.5% safe withdrawal rates even sound safer now. The point being is that this is a very personal thing, and it also matters on your risk tolerance. Those who are not too worried about risk may feel real happy with a 5% safe withdrawal rate and will be able to spend more and not think twice about it. Whereas those of us who are more conservative may feel like we have to go with much of a lower number. The truth is this could change over time, and we're going to have to keep our ears to the ground and listen to the experts and see what happens to our economy over the next decade. And hopefully you'll be able to do that by listening here on the Earn and Invest podcast. Really what I want, you know, my goal for this episode is that people say, ah, I've always wondered about franchising and, oh, so that's how it works. And even better yet, which is good for you and your business is, oh, this is how I take the first step, right? Because that's where everyone gets caught up. We all have these pie in the sky ideas, yep. but it's only when we figure out the first step, can we actually make headway towards a goal. And so. I think you accomplished this very well. You demystified you. a little bit of what franchising is and you made it very clear how you start the process. Thank and you. I think that means a lot.